And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm delighted to welcome Gene Ha to the program today. Gene is a four-time Eisner Award-winning comic artist, having worked on books like Alan Moore's Top Ten, Batman, Green Lantern, and Marvel Knights. Today we'll be talking about the series he created, May, which he writes and draws as well. Lion Forge recently released the second volume collection, which is about a pair of sisters from Indiana who find a portal to an amazing alien world. Gene May began as a Kickstarter graphic novel project. How did it end up becoming a serial comic book? I did the Kickstarter, well, I mean, literally as a kickstart to the project, like a motorcycle. I always planned it as an ongoing series, but I just wanted to make sure that it was distinctly my series. So I wanted to have no publisher involved initially except for myself and, yeah, just do something that was pure me. Now, for someone who's had so much success in the business, did it feel weird going to Kickstarter to get something going? Oh, yeah. I started in 1992, and I immediately started working for DC Comics and then jumped right into doing mixed work with DC and Marvel after that. So that's been most of my career. So doing something indie like that without a publisher involved at all was completely new. Dealing directly with a printer was something I don't want to repeat. And even thinking about distribution, I'm sure, would have been a nightmare, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, I got a lot of advice on how to do uh, distribution from writer uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, really famous in comics for like his DC work, Harley Quinn and stuff like that. And he does a great series of Kickstarter books, which are all brilliant and well-managed from his website. I think it's called paperfilms.com. And he just gave me all this advice on how to do it right, how to plan, overplan everything beforehand, because something's going to go straight into pure chaos. And at that point, you don't want to have to think about all the other elements and mess those up. And one of his bits of advice was make friends with your local post office. <laughs> and I should have done this, but I didn't. After you mail all your books, throw a little party for your people at your local post office. They bring by a giant pile of like multiple boxes of donuts or something. Yeah, I really still should do that. I owe those guys. <laughs> well, I remember there was a famous essay by um, Jonathan Franson about the Chicago post office. So I would really do that because that place kind of seems scary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I live outside Chicago, so my local suburban post office seems really boring and quiet usually. It's not that far from Chicago, but it's not quite in the heart of it. I know for people who live inside Chicago, there's a reputation for the Chicago post office of sometimes your packages just never show up. Yeah, it seems like pure chaos over there. So you live in a near western suburb of Chicago. Is it Berwyn? Yeah. Is there any difference from when you first started out to now? Is there an advantage or disadvantage of not being in New York or Los Angeles? Can you be located anywhere? What is that like? I can literally live anywhere. I used to say back in the 90s I could live anywhere with a good FedEx office. But nowadays I can live anywhere with a good steady internet connection. All the files are sent digitally. It's actually kind of a surprise for the offices if you actually want to mail them something. I have a friend, Stephanie Hans, who draws dye. She's French, but she oftentimes will just travel around the world while doing pages for her comic book series. So she's lived in places like uh, New York City, somewhere in California, Japan, like Singapore. She's like lived inside of this tourist district, also, which is famous for prostitution, but not, she didn't do that. But it had a lot of good food. She lived in a, the red light district of Singapore for a while while just drawing comics pages and just being a tourist. Boy, Singapore. Uh, I read a book from there a couple of years ago, The Art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai by Sunny Liu. Huh. It won like the biggest fiction award in Singapore. It's the first time a graphic novel ever won. Oh, Highly cool. recommended. If you haven't ever seen it, it is, it is an incredible book. Okay, now I really want to read that. I think I, I read a headline about that award, but I didn't know any of the details until you told me it. So. Oh, I'll cut this out of the podcast, but okay. I'll just explain it to you real quick. Um, he created an artist named uh, Charlie Chan Hak Chai, 
and he went through and he made an entire career for him and showed his evolution when he first started out in comics and how his style changed from talking animals to superhero type things. And the art styles changed over the years. But it's all a way to give the history of Singapore. Oh, uh, that's clever. From uh, Because they had merged with – Malaysia and then split from Malaysia again after a period of just a few years and going from the British rule into independence and everything. Just super fascinating. Oh, I think you should leave that in because I'm going to say that parallels one of the founders of the American comic book industry, Will Eisner, where he did slightly fictionalized memoirs of his own life, showing his life inside how he grew up on the streets of Manhattan when it was Jewish ghettos back then. And then he like got into the comic book industry, joined up and during World War II, and then got back in the industry and just... he. His biographical comics are just amazing, and it shows both the history of the United States in the 20th century and the history of comics and his own life. And you've talked about your similarity to him, both being of immigrant parents and getting oh. into the comics industry. And Yeah, I think there's some strong both historical parallels and especially emotional parallels between the Jewish-American experience and the more recent Korean-American experience. So it's just kind of nice reading about like the guys who founded the industry who are offering Jewish guys who are shut out of the Anglo-dominated newspaper comic strip industry – and therefore, they created the comic book industry as a place where they were going to try to use their talent anyway, people like Jack Kirby and stuff like that. So, Another thing came up. I don't know if you'll believe me. When I first started to read May, I was going, why am I thinking about why I hate Saturn right now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then I read later in the notes that it was indeed an influence for you. Yeah. And I have fessed up. It was actually at the last Memphis Comics Expo I was at. Kyle Baker was there. And I talked to him about how Why I Hate Saturn was a huge inspiration for me. I showed him my book and said, you know, these bits are totally inspired slash swipe from your book, uh, Why I Hate Saturn, and I hope you're cool with it. And he was totally cool with it. And it was transformed enough he didn't mind. And his signature is modeled after uh, Eisner's signature. (laughs) (laughs) Everything comes full circle, it seems. I didn't realize that was true. But I mean, now that you've mentioned it, it's really obvious because it looks like the Eisner Award E. When you had pitched people that you were going to do the 68-page graphic novel, but then you go ahead and get picked up by Dark Horse for the series – How does that change the way you approach the story in terms of arcs and having to kind of cut arcs down to book length instead of maybe just a longer arc or shorter bits? Having an editor is having a new collaborator. There's a funny thing at Dark Horse where I just burned through editors. Frankly, the first editor who recruited me at Two Dark Horse, Scott Alley, soon left the company. So I never got to actually work with Was it because of you? No, 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 no. Thank God it wasn't because of me. Let me see. Then I worked with a bunch of editors there. And then Dark Horse does not focus well on kids' books. They do great books for adults and especially for uh, people about my age or comic book hardcore grognards. But they were a little bit confused on how to reach out to the book publication, library, and the kids' markets. And then Line Forge just turned out to be a much better match for me. So I moved there. Then I got to work with Andrea Colvin. And she is one of the best story editors I've ever worked with in my life. But then they went through some shakeups recently. So she got May Volume 1, 2 kind of all f- sewed together beautifully in a way I wouldn't have expected because of her brilliant story sense. And now she's gone and she's started up the graphic novel division at Little Brown. Or at least she's expanded it so much that it's unrecognizable from how small it was before. Are you tied with Lion Forge or can you follow her to Little Brown? Getting into contract details, just really quick. Lion Forge definitely has first option on May Volume 3 and they definitely want to use it. So theoretically, I could go somewhere else, but I don't want to. Even though Andrea Colvin has moved on, her handpicked assistant, Grace Bornhoff, is still at Lion Forge and has her blessing to continue on with the editing. So I'm very, very happy with that. So our story begins in Indiana. Which part of the state does May and her family live in? The fictional Rain Tree County. I've placed that inside of about where the county where my wife grew up. It's a fictionalized version of Walcott, Indiana. 
Raintree County is actually a lot older than my book. It was a post-World War II great American novel around like 1947 or so. And I just thought that was so charming having that fictional county. I decided I was going to use it again, but I was going to move it from the center of the state to the northwest of the state. So not too far from your native South Bend. Not too far. South Bend is a Rust Belt town. So it's a little bit different that way, but it's a Rust Belt town surrounded by cornfields and Walcott and the fictional Zenith, Indiana inside of Raintree County are both kind of farm towns surrounded by corn instead of industrial towns surrounded by corn. And it's also that Zenith TVs were built inside of Indiana. It was just a reference to that too. Now, her older sister, Abby, seems to be a bit of a wild card. Oh, yeah. You know, they say that a writer always says that every character is kind of based on me. There's definitely an element of May on my thoughtful think-ahead side. And Abby is definitely my, the heck with it. Let's just dive in and have some adventure. And, oh, that was a mistake. But going to keep on going. That doesn't sound very Indiana. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's very Indiana. (laughs) Oh, famous last words. Hey, watch this. (laughs) Yeah. I love the Hoosier State. But there's definitely an element in a lot of the population of let's get drunk, do something crazy, and have some fun. And then we'll deal with it on Sunday morning or Monday morning or something like that. So. Uh, maybe they changed the name of the song to All the Corn Liquor in Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Though, frankly, it's kind of an all-American thing. I can't think of any part of the country that doesn't have a little element of that cheerful American stupidity that I love so much. Now, her best friend is Dahlia, and she's going to P.U. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, other than going to P.U., what's significant about Dahlia? I initially created her as kind of a foil to May, as the person who kind of has the life that May wants. So May is a person who has graduated from high school, was great at academics, and actually enjoyed quite a lot of them, including math and science. And then just the circumstances of her life left her stuck inside of her hometown. She couldn't go to Purdue University, which is probably only like a 30 or 40-minute drive from Zenith, Indiana. But her best friend, who spent her high school years inside of Zenith, got to go to Purdue, lives in a bigger house with richer parents. And she grew up with her mom and dad, not just her dad, who are both in good health, while May is stuck in Indiana because her dad's in bad health, has the cheerful, oh, I'm just going to do what I want to do and drink and eat and not take care of myself properly. So therefore, May has to deal with the fallout from that. And part of that is just helping with his medical stuff, making sure he gets to his doctor's appointments and all that, keeping up the family business, and just being the anchor woman on that to keep the business going. What happened to their mother, May and Abby's mother? She left the family when May was maybe like one or two years old. And when uh, her older sister was a toddler still. There's a mystery about that because the dad does not like talking about the mother. That does get expanded upon later inside the book. Then Abby does the same thing. She leaves the family and May is left there by herself to take care of her father. Oh, yeah. Abby is just one of those kids who just does not fit into a small town. And just like everyone kind of knowing your business and expecting everyone to kind of agree with everything each other and just, you know, go along to get along. And that's just not Abby at all. So when she finds another world where, frankly, she doesn't fit in either, but she gets kind of celebrated for it by becoming the action hero of a fantasy world, she just gets addicted to it. She just decides, I can't go back to Indiana at this point. I'm just going to stay here. Until she burns so many bridges, she finally decides, oh, I guess I have to go back to Indiana, which is where the story starts. And do you think she would have chosen Indiana had she had a choice if the portal weren't there? Would she have gone someplace else or did she actually feel a real obligation to her family? Oh, you mean for Abby? Uh, Yeah. Do you think if a portal would have been in San Francisco or Berlin or something like that, she would have preferred to go there? Oh, boy. I I haven't actually thought of this before. Abby can only go through the portal either from one side to Simmerterran. You can just call it Simmerterran. It's much easier. And she can go to the other fantasy world. Or she can go back to Indiana. But there had been an option to go to San Francisco or New York City or something like that. 
yeah, I guess there is a pretty good chance she would have just done it. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, because we're, we're creating a whole new book here if she had those options. <laughs> One of the things that happens in the book is that Abby figures out after a while, being in both worlds, that there's price differences on certain items. So certain things like chocolate and peppercorns can't be grown in the fantasy world. So she, when she brings these things over from there, they're incredibly valuable. While there are other products from that world that are actually valuable in our world. So if she'd actually worked at it for a bit, and if she had a doorway to, say, let's say New York City, she probably could have figured out some type of weird handmade artifacts that are relatively cheap inside of the fantasy world and brought them back and said, hey, look at these amazing, I don't know. Like there's probably some precious metal that's more common inside of Simmerterran than on Earth. Yeah, and she or she could back, set up an Etsy page. Yeah. And she could have brought back valuable, like, I don't know, solid platinum jewelry or something like that and just said, hey, I'm selling handmade platinum jewelry on my Etsy page. Yeah. And it would have worked perfectly and she could have made a living that way. And it seems to kind of parallel the age of exploration into colonialism from Europe. The history of that fantasy world, this is kind of revealed in the course of the story, but it's in bits and pieces. But it's not a big story reveal. It's not the important mystery of the book or anything like that. Around the middle of the 1800s, various portals to the other fantasy world opened up in a few spots on our world. There were a few on the United States, but they weren't discovered early on. But the one that was discovered was inside what's now the Czech Republic. And uh, at this time, the Czech homelands were ruled by the Austrian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So the Czech scientists who discovered this doorway quickly decided, wow, we do not like being ruled by the Austrians. And if we tell the government authorities what we discovered, it's theirs, not ours anymore. We're not going to have access to it. So it became this secret. And they began exploring it and then colonizing it. And then they invited friends who were Czech-American and then eventually African-American to also come along as long as they kept the secret because if the United States government found out, they would inform the Austrian government perhaps and that caused trouble for the Czechs. Or when they invited the African-American scientists in the United States, they realized, oh, wow, look at this whole land here where we don't have to face segregation and the horrors of, you know, like slavery. Still yeah, slavery and lynching, yeah. Well, it's post, it was post-Civil War, I think, by the time that the uh, African-American scientists got involved. But yeah, but still, it was a place where they could just go and be free. And so uh, once again, they didn't tell the government and then the doorways just suddenly closed a little before World War I, and people couldn't go back and forth anymore. On the other world, Earth just became this legend of where they'd come from generations ago. Why did you choose the Czech Republic or Bohemia or whatever it was called in the, the mid-1800s for oh, the, the Genesis? Yeah. definitely called it Bohemia. So yeah, you got that right. I chose it mainly as an aesthetic decision because I was trying to figure out what I was going to call the different lands and cities and monsters. I grew up inside of a subdivision outside South Bend, Indiana called Knollwood, where we had streets named with names like Lincroft and Foxcross and things like that. So when I watch a TV show like Game of Thrones and everything has names like Black Castle, you know, and things like that, I was just like, oh, this sounds like the streets I grew up on. This sounds like the most boring fantasy in the world possible. If I make a fantasy world, it's not going to have names like that. And then there's other options like anything Scandinavian or German sounds like cheesy heavy metal bands to me or Ikea furniture. So I didn't want to go for that option. Latin sounds pretentious and didn't make sense for the story. I didn't want to have it be an ancient Roman. Japanese, again, it just sounds way too specific or things like that. And it just everything kind of came together where I liked how Czech words looked, even though I didn't know how to pronounce them. It seemed almost as alien as possible while still using the Roman alphabet. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just fun. It was just, yeah, the names were just fun. And I began making up, using a Czech English dictionary to just make up placeholder fantasy names that I thought could work. And before publication, I realized, okay, these are really bad. Someday someone who speaks Czech or grew up Czech is going to read these and just be really angry with me if I keep these placeholder names. So I worked with a professor of Slavic languages at the University of Chicago, whom I still haven't met yet, named Malin Sternstein. And she took my placeholder names and then made very, very clever 
Czech language names, oftentimes of mashups and portmanteau words and stuff like that for all the things I'd made up. Have you learned to pronounce Czech in an acceptable way? On my website or in the back of May Volume 1, you can find a glossary for the names inside of the May graphic novels. There's a pronunciation guide there and some advice. And if I have the pronunciation guide in front of me, I can definitely pronounce it right. But there's little things like the R's are always thrilled. S's sometimes have a T sound in them. So like simmerterin, not simmerterin, it's simmerterin. How hard do you hold to that timeline of what really happened in the mid-19th century in Central Europe when you're then theorizing what a splinter world from there would have turned out like? Well, the most important part is the cutoff date of around 1910. It partially, I didn't want to get World War I involved in it. But also the other thing is that I didn't want the scientists who traveled over there to have a good understanding of Einstein's special relativity theories. So essentially, all of that stuff, and especially quantum physics, are completely alien to that world. So if they had got a hold of a cell phone, they might start to understand how it works. But essentially, they'd have to learn quantum physics to really understand how it works. So things like May's cell phone is like a complete wonder there. They have never seen anything like it. And also when May, frankly, finds a piece of technology there that can communicate through radio waves digitally, and May has the only cell phone on the planet, she's the only person on the planet then who can actually communicate with this device. Because there's some ancient technology there that no one really knows where it came from. Yeah, from before the checks and then all the other humans followed over. There's a deeper history which is going to come out in May Volume 3. There's a big ballroom bash, I guess is the best way to put it, at the end of May Volume 1, where we get to see some of the alien ancients technology. And it's not like Earth technology, and May is the only person able to interact with it. And it's only because she's carrying a cell phone. In Volume 2, we get a little bit of a Connecticut yanking Arthur's Court going on. Oh, yeah. I should mention, in May Volume 2, I brought on two guest writers. And I spent most of my career working at DC and Marvel with writers and me drawing their stories as the artist, I like collaborating. So I brought on Mark Wade to write one issue, and that was the Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court story. That's where that cutoff date of roughly 1910 really became important because we had to figure out inventions that had been either not invented by that time and that May could then invent there using the technology they had there. And it took a long time to, for me to figure out the big key technology of something that she'd be able to figure out how to construct in a month's time if she's a technological genius, not quite Tony Stark or Riri Williams, but as much as you could expect from a real person who's an absolute technological genius in our world. And it turned out to be a thing we're talking into right now and that you're listening to us through, which is microphones and amplifiers. It's kind of a miracle that this technology actually got invented. Even after all the bits and pieces were put together, it still took over a decade for someone to figure out how to make it all fit together to build the first loudspeaker. Now, is there any bit of technology in their world that we haven't developed yet? Giant walking robots, energy effects that can cause earthquakes and eruptions of energy from the ground. The physics there are a little bit different, and not just physics, but also the Oberoni have technology for making Dr. Moreau's island chimera monster fusion creatures and giants and stuff like that, which, you know, the square cube law says can't exist and things like that. There are energies there and differences in the how the world works there that allows these things to actually live or be combined together in a way you can't do here. Beyond humans, there's a lot of other creatures there that can communicate and are sentient. Oh, yeah. Some of those predate humans, and some of those are things created by the mad scientists there. At one point, May rides on a creature that's a combination mainly of a mountain lion with a giant rabbit, a kangaroo. It's called a dracun. But, it's, yeah, it's, it's a combination of just a lot of things I just wanted to draw all at once. <laughs> there's a, a character named Pasha who seems like a cross between an Ewok and a stupid, stupid rat creature. The face is mainly based on a leaf-nosed bat, and it's just really simple like that. I just made a cutesier version of a leaf-nosed bat. But, yeah, he's kind of a stupid rat creature. 
in Czech, he's called Askret. And I'm probably mispronouncing that a little bit, but it essentially just means goblin. But he's essentially is the rocket raccoon equivalent from a bat. He loves his food, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mentioned I brought in two guest writers. The other guest writer is a friend of mine who's a comic geek, comic book journalist, and also works at Gmart Comics in Chicago, Molly Jane Kramer. And I'd set up the character Pasha earlier, but I had not given the character a name. I just called the character Bat Ninja, never in the text of the book. Whenever I asked me about it, I said, oh, that's Bat Ninja. And she gave Pasha a name. I did not know if Bat Ninja was male or female. And she said, oh, definitely male. And just went through all the other things. Gave him his full name, Svadopluk, something, something. Yeah, and then gave him his personality of loving junk food, just being kind of shy and retiring because he's a Bat Ninja and just built up everything up. And I knew I wanted Dahlia and Bat Ninja to be friends. The way this whole started with me inviting Molly Jane Kramer to write the story, she's the photo reference model for Dahlia. And that's why Dahlia is Dahlia Jane Kramer. Molly Jane Kramer, Dahlia Jane Kramer. But then I found out that Molly Jane actually went to Purdue which is something I definitely established that Dahlia was going to. So I began asking her about her experiences at school there. And I knew the basic beats of the story of the Dahlia issue. And then Molly Jane just began giving me various experiences and observations she'd made about her time at Purdue. And I began realizing, I'm not really writing the story. I'm just transcribing what she's <laughs> describing to me. So I said, do you want to write this? You know how everything in the story should work. And you definitely have strong opinions on where we should go with Bat Ninja. And she's like, Sure. Okay. And she did it. And my main job was first translating the things she described into a comic book script. She hadn't written a script before, so she wasn't used to the formatting. And then after that, just visually drawing it. So, yeah. You mentioned photo reference. And there are a couple of times in the book where I see something that almost hits the uncanny valley. And that ah. there's there's a three-dimensionality that seems kind of unlike other things. And I was just wondering how much photo reference played a role in your art. I have photo reference of some of the main characters, both May and her older sister, Abby, are based on the daughter of a friend of mine, but the same model. Dolly is based on Molly Jane Kramer. I have extensive photo reference on those two characters because they're friends of mine. I was able to take photo shoot sessions before I started too far into the book. But everything else, everyone else is based on like an obscure actor or just a random photo I found. The dad is literally just based on a few famous Czechs and my next door neighbor who all have a similar look. The dad is based on Alphonse Muha, the famous Art Nouveau artist who lived in Paris but was from the Czech homelands. My next-door neighbor is Czech-American, so it's a little bit based on him. And then also, importantly, Hilary Barta. If you just take Hilary Barta and Alphonse Muha, and if you look at photos of both of them and kind of average it out and then make it shorter than either of those guys, that's pretty much what May's dad looks like. In today's culture, we're talking so much about the value of representation. Why did you decide to write a cross-culture and feature a more European-centric character base? Most American fantasy worlds are based on Europe. Again, I didn't want to go totally with like the Grimm's fairy tales, German thing, or English, things that sound like suburban streets. So I wanted to make it a little bit different. And also I wanted to make it contrasting a lot with rural Indiana. And I just wanted to make their part of rural Indiana to feel very, very restricting, despite the fact that it's literally flat plains of corn. I mean, but just still feeling trapped inside that. I wanted to feel totally different. I made it mountainous. I made it ethnically diverse, at least African-American and white and stuff like that, and a little bit other stuff. And then a lot of a Star Wars cantina situation of just alien creatures everywhere and just kind of make everything feel like endless possibilities. And there's a thing where like once you get used to any situation in life, it starts to feel like you just take all the, the wonders and the possibilities for granted. And you don't notice how you're surrounded by wonders. I mean, just like I'm holding my cell phone up to the radio audience who can't see it. But I mean, this is essentially as a Jack Kirby fourth world mother box. I mean, I can't summon a teleportation tube with this, but almost everything else that happened inside of a 1970s science fiction comic book can be done 
with this little plate of glass inside my hand. Except you also can't have an intelligent conversation with Siri. Now, men don't come across very well mostly in May. And I just wanted to say it seemed very realistic that way. <laughs> I wanted to make them prickly, though I should mention not everyone who necessarily looks like a – I'm going to put quotation marks up – a villain in this book is a villain. It's a little bit of a giveaway, but hopefully not too big because I'm not going to give all the details. There's a scene where May finally gets to see her boyfriend again. Who's, she's been separated from all through May Volume 1 and most of Volume 2. And he is not happy about the way she abandoned him. Understandably. Yeah. And he lets her know. And in a way, because May is the hero of the book, you could say that he's the villain of the scene, except that he's totally right. She was a jerk about how she treated him. Everyone has their reasons as well. Yeah. So, yeah. And in a way, he's the opponent, but he's definitely not. I don't think of him as like, yeah, he had a right to. But other people are jerks just because they're jerks. You brought people in to help you write a couple of episodes, but you also brought in someone to help with art in Chapter 6 of Volume 1. You uh, brought in Paulina Gunnishow to do Abby's flashback to her early days. She did it in kind of like an early 90s Archie style. I just thought that was really interesting. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of like a 90s Archie style, but I would describe it more as like an updated Sailor Moon style. Paulina Gunnishow has a very kind of super clean line style combined with this bright kind of, I would almost call it like a candy-colored color sensibility for the colorist that just works together beautifully. Abby, the older sister, grew up loving things like Sailor Moon and stuff like that. And this is a flashback not seen from May's viewpoint, who's very can be very clinical and science-geeky and STEAM-STEM student-type person. Abby lives in her own little fantasy world in any situation that doesn't always look like the actual world everyone else is living in. So it made a lot of sense to bring in Paulina for the story that's from her viewpoint, where she is literally a Sailor Moon-type hero, even though that's not what's going on at all. Because to a lot of different types of people, and meaning all sentient beings in this other world, yeah, she is held from high esteem to the lowest regard. Yeah. When I said that Abby became a hero in another world, the people who love her most are the bipedal barbarian warrior cats. They're about four feet tall, weigh probably about 200 pounds. They're incredibly tough, gruff barbarian warrior cats. And they just think she's the greatest human they've ever met because she's scruffy and likes wandering around nomadically like they do and just finding adventure and stuff like that. They just adore her. And what happened is she became the queen of this tribe because the Nukove, barbarian warrior cats, don't normally have a queen. They have like chieftains and stuff like that for this and that for different purposes, but they don't have a permanent royal family. But they need to make an alliance with some nobles who expected them to have a noble leader like a duke or a baron or a king or a queen. So it's like, uh, they frankly want to have a royal marriage alliance, at which point it's like, well, we don't want to marry a human. That's, that's horrible. But hey, you're our friend. You're a human. If we call you our queen, will you be willing to marry this guy so we can have a peace treaty? And she gets guilted into it and chaos ensues. The political situation is very, very complex there. How do you make it complex and nuanced without making it confusing? Yeah, it can get very, very complex, but essentially it really comes down to, it's almost like soap opera. You know, these two people are feuding and they don't get along. These two people don't get along, but they have to be friends. And these people really love each other, but for political reasons, they can't. You don't have to understand all the back reasons why people have a complicated history. Just know that it's there and then see how they deal with it now to see how the story works. You don't have to understand all things. You have to understand that some of the things just don't have an easy solution. Like a very simple one is that one character is in love with another character inside the book, but that ex now has a new girlfriend. So therefore, they're not going to break up with their girlfriend just so they can get back together with, you know, so-and-so. Yeah, and you don't have to understand all of the politics behind why they broke up and then why the other people got together. 
And it seems one of the themes that really comes to be developed in volume two is what obligations are on us to help people, even if they aren't from our world, our species. And, you know, it's a metaphor for what's our obligation in the world to people from other cultures around the world. And it just seems like that's one of the directions that the story is headed into. Why are we here and why are we helping these people when it's not our home? You try to help the people who are within your reach. If you're the one there, you're the one who needs to take care of it if there's no one else to do it. So like when May is trapped at home and she's the only person who's going to make sure that her dad makes all of his doctor visits and takes his medicines and all that type of stuff, she can move out of the house. The family business is doing well enough so that she can actually get her own apartment. But most days she's going to have to take a visit to her dad's house to check in on him, to clean up a little bit, to check on his medicines and stuff like that. Because she's the only person willing to do it, she gets stuck as the person who's going to do it. And sometimes this gets to a bigger thing. And Sometimes the people you do this for appreciate it, and then like usually happens with family. Some people don't appreciate it, but you still got to do it. And it's just kind of going through how sometimes it's rewarding. Like with Abby, of course, when she becomes the great action hero and she saves villages from monsters and stuff like that, she gets really celebrated for it, and she gets really addicted to it. And that's one of the big reasons why she doesn't go back to her family responsibilities inside of Indiana where she gets no credit at all. This is going from my life. I'm doing a talk later today at the Memphis Public Library. But back in the Chicago area, I did a talk at a museum where I led a session for kids that was about draw yourself as your own hero. And everyone had to draw heroes. And I asked them, like, what are problems that heroes have to solve or would be good to have a hero to solve? And they began describing things like making sure kids get fed and making sure kids get to school on time. And they began doing these very mundane things. Or like when there's a blackout, making sure everyone's safe. And at a certain point, I was kind of surprised by the answers and said, you know what? Most of these things you're describing sound like things that your parents – take care for you. Are your parents superheroes? And as a mass, all the kids yelled, no. <laughs> and it's kind of like, wow. <laughs> so that's a bit like May taking care of her dad of just like, she's not going to get credit for it. Do you have the complete arc of this story in your head or is it still evolving for you? Literally last night, I went through all of my notes and finally combined them into one giant document on my iPad. So the plot is all there. The surprise that sometimes happens is when you put all the characters together in a scene, you realize that one character in the scene has a different viewpoint and is going to make trouble. So that will control you a little bit off in the final writing process. But the whole plot structure is there. I know who's going to be where, the broad strokes of who's going to be angry at who and who's going to be working with who and who's going to make trouble for who. And also, this is very important for me. It's a lesson I learned from reading Alan Moore comic books when I was a kid, especially Swamp Thing. On Swamp Thing, he kept on every story arc the threat kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. When you keep on thinking it's not going to get, be able to get bigger, where it's like the Swamp Thing is fighting the biggest, nastiest monster you've ever seen. Oh, he's fighting all the demons in hell for the fate of Louisiana. He's fighting the whole Justice League, and he's winning. And eventually he gets to a point where he fights a being of pure darkness that's bigger than all of hell and is on the same scale as God, at which point it's like, what the? I'm not going to go that big, but I mean, I have learned this, what I call like the whole threat ladder thing of, I can keep on pushing the story bigger and bigger. And the third volume, things get a lot bigger than they ever did inside the second volume. In reading Alan Moore is one thing in learning. What did you learn working with Alan Moore? There's a repeated thing I've learned in my life. And Alan Moore is a really good example of this. Depending on the type of story you're doing, you're going to have to plan ahead. Like Alan Moore would give the example that if he's like writing a time travel story, it has to be very tightly plotted. But beyond the necessary parts of what you're going to plot, don't plot everything ahead of time. Plan what you have to plan and then wing everything else, and it'll be fine. And the way I phrase this, not the way anyone else phrases that I know of, is that you're going to have a certain amount of creativity every day. And if you try to take a giant epic 
and do all the plotting beforehand in one week, then you have seven days worth of creativity jammed into that plot, and then you're just locked in. But if you allow yourself to improvise as much as possible and leave space for improvising later, you're going to be able to draw on however long it takes you to make that project, months, a year, two years, whatever. But the whole course of it, you can keep on milking your brain for more creativity, and it's going to be a better product for it. And I probably overplot a little more than I should, but I'll say that I'm totally willing to just toss giant sections of plot and ideas and stuff like that out the window if I get a better idea later. And this has definitely happened, where it's just like I come up with better ideas and just things go out the window. So when do you know you're really finished? Essentially when the lettering's done. (laughs) I mean, after the art's drawn, the coloring's done, and the dialogue's finished. I mean, there's a page where, like, when I was still at Dark Horse, the scene where May accompanies her dad to a doctor's office was not in the original story plot. And the editor just said this would be a really good idea to just kind of show a scene like that. There's a little kind of creative back and forth where uh, he also said it'd be great if we had a little prequel section where we showed a younger Abby adventuring on the other world. The idea of having May with her dad was great, and I just went straight for that and just did exactly what he said. But I had to tightly plot out and dialogue that. But then for the prequel section, I was like, no, 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 no. This story is literally like The Wizard of Oz, where you cannot show Oz while they're still in Kansas. The point is when they get to Oz, it does not look like Kansas. And if you show it beforehand, you break all the suspense. When somebody gives you a criticism, figure out the reason why it's a problem. Don't necessarily accept their solution. I saw that, yeah, there's a thing here that could work for the story if I do a prequel. And there's this four-page section where you see May as a little girl sneaking into her older sister's room and then finding a box of treasures. And that was the story, that, the little story section that resulted from that. And I didn't want to show Simratown at that point, but it did show that Abby had a weird life that her little sister doesn't understand. And she had these artifacts, like a necklace made out of giant fangs and a scroll with a foreign language that our May has no idea what the language even is. It's Czech. If you can read Czech, it says it was written by the Beatle people. He doesn't have Google Translate at this point, so she has no idea what's going on. And then she finds actually one of these little Beatle people hibernating in the box, but she doesn't realize it's an actual tiny little Beatle person. And she just freaks out when it spreads its wings and jumps away from her. For some reason, it made me flash. There was a ABC special about the uh, the Gold Bug by Robert Louis Stevenson, and a letter plays an important role in that story as well. And oh. there's a little gold bug in there. And it just made me think about that when I read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think there might be a little bit of Treasure Island inside of me doing that scene too. So, yeah. So you grew up in South Bend, Indiana. Are you a Mayor Pete supporter? I'm going to say I like Mayor Pete a lot. I don't think he's necessarily the best Democratic nominee, but I think he's a really strong one. But I'm 50 years old. So at this point, he just seems like, oh, he is such a brilliant kid, but he still – Seems like a kid who's kind of feeling his way out and he's not used to national politics. And I'm going to say every time when somebody who's that new to politics jumps up a stage, they're going to spend about two years being confused. I mean, frankly, this is something that happened for the at least for the first two years of the Clinton presidency. And we are still seeing this now with the Trump presidency where he's like, oh, that's how these levers of government work? So I'm – I it would be a little bit – we'd have at least two years of train wreck if someone that new came <laughs> into the White House. So in just the small world, Mayor Pete's dad comes from Malta, and I saw on your oh, your website that. that you're going to a Comic Con in Malta soon. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just thought it was a small world thing. <laughs> I knew he was from somewhere from some country I couldn't remember, but yeah, I forgot it was Malta. Yeah, I'm going to uh, Malta Comic Con in early November. It's my first Mediterranean comic convention, so yeah, I'm just really looking forward to seeing a new country and stuff like that, and enjoying it, and much warmer weather than probably the Midwest will have. And then I'm going to just bop around Europe for a little bit. So it'll be a lot of fun. 
So are you going to work all the Maltese Falcon puns out of your, out of your system before you get there? <laughs> oh, I think that another part of my brain had just like a, uh, yeah, Maltese Falcon, Millennium Falcon. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, Nerf Herder popped up in the the first volume of May. Yeah, I'll just mention that I'm a huge fan of the author of the Maltese Falcon, uh, Deshiel Hammett. There's a nice little speech that the villain of that book gives about the history of Malta and the Knights of Malta and how they made the Maltese Falcon as a gift. Yeah, I'm actually really excited to see the medieval knightly history of that place and everything going back to like ancient Greek times and beyond from there. My wife did not grow up playing Dungeons and Dragons, so she's not quite as excited about finding out about like crusader history as I am, but I'm really excited about it. Oh, Knights Templar just fascinates the heck out of me. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So when will the third run of May be out? Oh, I'm afraid there's going to be a big delay because I'm currently doing a 12-page short story for an unannounced Marvel project. And then after that, I have a 64-page graphic novel for DC I'm doing, which is unannounced, me working on it. It'll take a while to do these because I am really going to be going all out to make the art on these as perfect as I can and in styles that are different than May. So I'm probably going to spend most of 2020 working on those. And then it's going to give me a late start on finishing up May. And May is also a book where it has not been coming out on a, on a monthly schedule at all. And it's a book where I'm trying to get everything just right so I can be proud of it. I guess a way to put it is I've been working on mostly monthly books for most of my career. And there's always been different production things that have kind of limited to how much work and how much perfectionism and I can put into each page. And May is the thing where I kind of figured out a system of like, okay, I know how to get exactly what I want onto the page now. Just things like digital production techniques and stuff like that. And frankly, just all these recent uh, art school graduates who are training and all this type of stuff has really helped make that happen. Thank you my, to my colorist, Wesley Hartman, and all the rest of the team, Xander Cannon. So when I do come out with May Volume 3, I'm going to make sure it is the most beautiful book. I can make it visually, and the story is exactly what I want. I'm going to just lay it out and figure out the story and play with it and take time. And essentially, milk my brain for creativity for as long as it takes to get that story right. So it'll probably be coming out, I'm hoping, in first half of 2021. But it's the big project I want to do after I get done with the big DC project, which is going to be really exciting. It's a writer I've never worked with before, very famous, very acclaimed writer who's being given carte blanche to do something really brilliant there. And I want to do the story justice because it's going to be amazing, but I just can't say anything else about it yet. And is Prague on the itinerary for your European trip? Not yet. And I don't know how many people from Chechia actually listen to this Memphis podcast. I hope you do, but I am really excited for the, hopefully someday for May to be published inside of the Czech Republic and getting to actually talk to people there about the book would just make me so happy. I didn't mention this before, but another thing that makes me want to make Czechs, the people who initially explored and colonized that world, is that it's just Czech history is kind of unique inside of uh, European history. First of all, it's a country that they're incredibly valiant, incredibly brave throughout history, but also they have almost no glorious military victories in their history. It's actually a thing of, well, we got crushed again, but we did it valiantly (laughs) and we've been philosophical afterwards. They're also such a philosophical country. Like, of course, after their liberation from the Warsaw Bloc and Russian domination, their first president was a playwright. Yeah, Vlachlav Havel. Yeah, that's not unusual for them. One of the most beloved novels of the World War I period, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this horribly, The Good Soldier Strike, is about a soldier who, it's never made clear inside the book, but it's a soldier who always acts like an idiot and then gets out of fighting and taking care of his responsibilities, and he's always a sad sack. And it's just seen as like the funniest, most brilliant thing. It's, you know, from that time period. It's just so beloved. It's a theme for bars where they'll just make good soldier Schweik restaurants themed around his adventures <laughs> and misadventures and 
annoying Austrians to no end and Hungarians to no end. <laughs> There's such brilliant people. Oh, also, I should mention some more things. They were Protestant before Martin Luther, and then the Germans crushed them or the Austrians crushed them. And when they did, they then wiped out almost all of the Czech nobility, got rid of them, took away their lands and stuff like that. So everyone who was Czech was pretty much the same class. It was an equal, uh, equal society. And they just got very used to the idea that everyone has a voice because we're all peasants now. None of us are nobles anymore, so let's just get used to it. Yeah, they just had this natural democratic spirit ever since medieval times, which is really unusual. I had no idea about that. It's really unique inside of Europe. Well, I shouldn't say unique. There's probably something I don't know about. But what I know of European history, it's pretty darn unique. Extremely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, great pl- uh, it's a great place I've never been to. So also I'm excited. <laughs> so we're like, I don't know about Czech Comic Cons, but if you guys ever want to invite me to a comic convention there, I am going to be so excited to like freak out over there about everything. So. What's your feeling on beer and sausage? and? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I oh, love you're from Chicago, so oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, of course, the original Budweiser was invented by Czechs. Some Czech and German immigrants came to the United States and decided, oh, we'll make a beer called that too. And then there's been a trademark battle ever since. But the original is Czech. Yeah, and they've of course invented Pilsner beer. Everything about it, the literary and the cultural and all the history. Oh, also. One more thing about Czechs. I hope you're a super literate <laughs> library crowd because this is getting really deep into the weeds. But the reason I called it Semiterran is based on a joke from Czech radio from the communist times when they decided that there were some guys working at the radio station there decided they were going to make the greatest Czech of all time, Jan Zimmerman. And they began talking about him on the radio as if he was real. He was completely fictional. They began talking about how he like invented the telephone before an American did and uh, made all these great inventions and wrote all these great plays that everyone who's Czech should know about which really annoyed the communist authorities of just like, you shouldn't be saying this, but they couldn't lock down why they shouldn't be saying this and making these jokes and stuff like that. So now there's like a national theater inside of the Capitol named after this fictional playwright who never lived. The sense of humor inside of Czech culture is just amazing. And just like, how do you survive through stupid totalitarian regimes? And part of it is just have a good sense of humor and never stop making fun of the stupid people. Jan Zimmerman, that would translate to John Carpenter. I didn't know that. Wait, do you speak Czech? I speak German, and Zimmermann means carpenter in German. Oh, wow. (laughs) I didn't know that. Um, So they live. Yeah. Okay. But inside my fictional history of Zimmermann, which means, I guess, carpenter lands, carpenter's land, the same person who invented all these great electronics inventions before Thomas Edison did and wrote all these plays is also the man who discovered the gateway to this world and then decided, I'm going to name it after myself. And that's where the name came from. As one does. Yeah. Well, Gene, I want to thank you so much for coming by today and later on sharing your artistic ability and passions with the kids of Memphis. It's a treat to have you here. Yeah. And uh, I may just be like a fictional invention by the library staff here and the radio staff here, but we're never going to admit to it. (laughs) And I hope I have a theater named after myself. Your mind is blown. (laughs) Thanks. Gene Hawes, the writer and artist for May. The Volume 2 collection is available from Lion Forge. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. 
you are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.